This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, as the Ebola story continues to dominate the headlines, we have to remind our listeners of the imminent and annual threat of flu. Millions of Americans who don't get vaccinated are going to come down with flu this season. And it's estimated that 200,000 Americans will seek medical care in hospitals and emergency rooms due to flu complications. Well, while the threat of Ebola is the one that's primarily in uh, the public consciousness right now and is causing some politicians to react with harsher guidelines than those recommended by the Centers for Disease Control, we're still only looking at a very small number of cases in this country. But we know, Mark, as frontline providers, we will be kept quite busy with the flu this winter due to people still persistently not getting that flu vaccine as is suggested. And it bears repeating, Margaret, the flu is expected to kill close to 50,000 Americans this year. We must encourage a vigilant approach to vaccinations that can prevent so much suffering. It's also important to remind folks that flu vaccines are completely covered under the Affordable Care Act. That's right. And that's another benefit of the expansion of coverage in America. And the other deadly pathogen that's killing tens of thousands of Americans is antibiotic-resistant bacteria. An estimated 75,000 Americans die each year from such infections. Medicare is starting to crack down on hospitals with the highest infection rates, which often lead to costly rehospitalization for patients, as well, of course, as poor outcomes for these vulnerable patients. Medicare has cited some 700 hospitals across the country for poor infection control. It's part of an effort to improve outcomes for patients, as well as bring down cost. Finding these facilities will provide more incentives to better protect their patients with more targeted preventions. It's only a solution in a case where there simply are no antibiotics strong enough to control these superbugs. It's a real problem, Margaret, and a deadly one. Well, all of this is something that our guest today is very well versed in. Dr. Arjun Srinivasan is an internist and epidemiologist specializing in infectious disease as well as in hospital-acquired infection at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. He's also acting as a spokesperson for the CDC during this Ebola crisis. He's been studying evidence-based practices on prevention of hospital infections, and we'll have the latest information on the government's protocol for Ebola as well as other infection pathogens that may pose a threat to public health. Well, there's still so much information out there, Mark, that's being stoked by fear. So we look forward to hearing a voice of knowledge and expertise on the topic. And speaking of a voice of knowledge and reason, someone to calm the waters, Lori Robertson looks into more false claims spoken about health policy in the public domain. But no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com. And as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or at chc radio on Twitter because we'd love to hear from you. We'll get to our interview with Dr. Arjun Srinivasan in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. Forget Ebola. The flu is most likely to be a lethal agent in this country, where an estimated thousands die each year due to flu. Public health officials are worried the Ebola message is interfering with the annual flu shot call. In the U.S., tens of millions are expected to get influenza. More than 200,000 of them will be hospitalized. 49,000 will likely die from flu, according to figures from the Centers for Disease Control. Flu shots are recommended for just about everyone over six months of age, but less than half 
half of the people actually get vaccinated each year. Now there's even more reason to get the shot. The health law requires most health plans cover a range of preventive benefits at no cost to consumers, including recommended vaccines. The flu shot is one of them. With more definitive guidelines on the books for Ebola coming from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and outbreaks limited to a small handful, the attention is turning once again to ground zero. The need for aid workers far outstrips the actual number of boots on the ground in certain parts of hardest-hit West Africa. Cases mounting daily in Liberia. A World Health Organization report warns the virus could lead to economic collapse in certain parts of West Africa if continued unchecked. A new coalition of physicians groups has launched a national push for more protection for their profession. Family medicine doctors are joining forces to win a bigger role in health care and to be paid for it. Eight family physician-related groups, including the American Academy of Family Physicians, have formed Family Medicine for America's Health, a coalition to sweeten the public perception of what they do and advance interests through state and federal policies. The launch of the five-year, $20 million campaign comes at a critical time for primary care doctors. Thanks to the health care law, millions more people can seek care with newly gained insurance. But there's a growing debate about whether nurse practitioners and physician assistants should provide a lot more basic care either on their own or as part of clinics sponsored by pharmacies and other businesses. Of love and chocolate. A new study shows the flavanol riches found in dark chocolate. The darker, the better, the better effect it has on your brain, especially your aging, memory-challenged brain. The study found those who were given a regular dose of dark chocolate over three months did better on standard memory tests. The study, led by Columbia University scientist Dr. Scott Small, showed that after three months on a liquid chocolate compound, brain function and memory improved 25%. But you'd have to eat the equivalent of about seven bars a day. Chocolate manufacturers are hot on the dark cocoa trail to develop a product that would do the trick more efficiently. I'm Mariano O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with Dr. Arjun Srinivasan, a spokesman for the Center for Disease Control and Prevention and Associate Director for Healthcare-Associated Infection Prevention Programs in the Division of Healthcare Quality at the National Center for Emerging and Zoonotic Infectious Disease at the CDC. Dr. Srinivasan is also a captain in the U.S. Public Health Services, uh, has served as a response team leader and medical epidemiologist at the National Center for Infectious Disease, a board-certified internist and infectious disease specialist. He earned his medical degree from Vanderbilt University and conducted his residency at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Dr. Srinivasan, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Uh, obviously, we're at a terrible intersection and a terrible health crisis in West Africa with the spread of Ebola, uh, this deadly virus that can be quite lethal if left unchecked. Thousands of residents in several West African countries have contracted Ebola, and more than half of them have died. Uh, and the expectations are that thousands of more will contract the virus before it's over. And this is obviously, while there have not been many cases in the United States, uh, there's a tremendous amount of fear percolating throughout the countryside. Um, Why is it proving to be such a deadly, first of all, pathogen in West Africa? And what are folks in this country, uh, what should they be most concerned about? 
Well, Ebola has long been known to be a very deadly viral infection. We have experience with Ebola outbreaks uh, over literally decades uh, that CDC has participated in efforts to control those outbreaks along with a number of different organizations. And if you look uh, historically, the experience has been largely consistent with what we're seeing now. Uh, with very, very high uh, infection rates. The infection spreads uh, readily, and it's very lethal. The difference, of course, is that this outbreak is, is without any precedent in terms of its scope and its scale. We continue to emphasize at CDC that all of us in the United States need to be uh, concerned about the outbreak in Africa. Uh, we do really believe that the best way to protect uh, the United States and all other countries from Ebola is to support the efforts in Africa to control Ebola. So it is important for us to be aware of what's going on in Africa and to support uh, the efforts that are underway in Africa to control this outbreak. Well, Dr. Srinivasan, as frontline community health and primary care providers in a primary care organization, we are obviously keeping our eye very closely on the evolving information and the Ebola protocols coming out of the CDC, and, and let me say also how much we appreciate them and the quality of those uh, sort of key uh, messages and directives that are coming forward. And it seems that those regulations for identifying and isolating and treating suspected Ebola cases uh, continue to evolve a bit and to be refined because, as with all public health scenarios, the situation is somewhat fluid as it runs its course. Now, the CDC recently amended the requirements for health professionals who work directly with Ebola patients here in the U.S., much more stringent guidelines for donning and discarding of personal protection equipment, or PPEs, which I think is now going to become one of those expressions that's well-known in the American public. A PPE was never known before, but people certainly know what it is now. Perhaps for our listeners, you could outline these stricter guidelines and talk a little bit about the chain of command that's recommended should a patient present with Ebola-like symptoms and risk factors uh, to a healthcare facility in the United States. Absolutely. So I can cover the, the issues with the personal protective equipment that's you know, within our group that worked on, on that guidance. And the, the principles of what we outlined in the new guidance for personal protective equipment, um, there are kind of three overarching principles that are outlined in the new guidance. The first is that healthcare workers need to have training on the protective equipment that they're going to be using for caring for a patient with Ebola. Um, it's, I think, uh, clear that you know, this is equipment that we don't use every day in patient care, and so we have to be trained on it so that we know how to put it on and take it off carefully. The second overarching principle is that we shouldn't have exposed skin that's present while we're providing care for hospitalized patients. And I should emphasize that these are guidance uh, or guidelines for personal protective equipment for caring for patients who are hospitalized with Ebola virus disease in the United States. So this is guidance for caring for hospitalized patients. Um, and the, the third principle is that there needs to be an observer, someone who watches every step of putting on and taking off the protective equipment to ensure that it's been done properly. A couple of other uh, important changes that we made uh, is to be more descriptive about exactly the, the types of 
protective equipment uh, to provide fewer options for what people could use and to be a little more specific about what those options are and to provide a suggested protocol, a methodology for putting on the equipment and taking off the equipment. Not to say that hospitals won't choose to modify the methods for putting it on and taking it off uh, in accordance with what works well for their healthcare providers, but we wanted to provide some suggestions and guidance on how that could be done. The other big change is the recommendation that healthcare workers who are entering the room uh, to provide hospital care for a patient with Ebola virus disease wear uh, respiratory protection, so not a, a surgical mask, but an actual respirator, so either an N95 respirator or a powered air purifying respirator. And I want to clarify that we changed that guidance not because we think that Ebola is spread via an airborne route, but we changed it because discussions with folks who have firsthand experience with caring for patients with Ebola virus disease in this country, and that's new experience, obviously. We mm -hmm. had never had a person mm -hmm. uh, cared for in a U.S. hospital with Ebola virus. So we're, we're learning about how to safely care for these patients. And one of the things that, that they have told us is that the level of care might change very suddenly. There might be a need for uh, folks to do an aerosol-generating procedure that could create aerosols that might hmm. pose some risk. And so what they said is that it's safest for healthcare workers who are entering the room to be ready for whatever might need to be done because we don't want people to have to leave the room suddenly and put on something else or to rush in putting on the equipment. Mm -hmm. And so that's why uh, that recommendation mm -hmm. is made. You know, Americans have obviously become uh, quite concerned about the outbreak once it hit our shores with a patient from Liberia who presented with the illness after landing in Dallas and infecting several healthcare workers there before uh, he passed away uh, from the illness. And there's really been a firestorm of criticism about the quarantine protocols, even for healthcare workers who test negatively and asymptomatically. You know, the American public may not be listening to reason. They certainly are aware that there's an executive order signed in 2003 that allows the president to has a list of quarantinable, uh, communicable diseases. Uh, Ebola is on that where he could take action. But I think the public really needs to understand how the CDC arrived at its guidelines for handling healthcare workers. Unfortunately, the guidance on movement and monitoring of persons with potential Ebola virus is not an area where I've been actively involved, mm -hmm. but CDC is actively engaged with uh, a number of different professional organizations. Uh, we're working with you know, emergency department groups uh, in order to work with them on uh, the protocols and guidance for emergency departments. We're connecting with uh, groups of ambulatory physicians uh, about guidance for ambulatory regulatory uh, physicians, which we're working on. I do want to emphasize, you know, one of the things that we, we touched on a little bit earlier, uh, the idea of, you know, chain of command of patients who might be identified in an emergency department or a, a clinician's office. And, um, there is guidance for emergency departments, uh, and we're working on uh, guidance for ambulatory care settings. And the key for those centers uh, really is, is something that we call the three I's. It's identify, 
isolate and inform. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we have those questions that are out there for folks to ask about uh, travel history and symptoms. You know, not that many people have travel histories or symptoms. And so, you know, in, in the overwhelming majority of cases, uh, you proceed as you would to deliver high-quality patient care. But if patients do answer yes to those questions where they have a travel or exposure history and have symptoms, then we do have a recommendation that, you know, the patient would be isolated and you inform public health. Uh, We know that public health jurisdictions around the country are working uh, very hard on developing plans for what to do with someone who might need to be evaluated for possible Ebola infection. Uh, And this is, again, this is a collaboration between healthcare and public health. And so the the health departments are your point of contact uh, to help you uh, talk through that process of, you know, whether the patient needs to be uh, more thoroughly evaluated for Ebola, are they at risk, and then how can that be done? So, um, Dr. Srinivasan, I also wanted to just ask you to comment on your incredible responsibility of trying to teach the entire country how to come into compliance or to be trained on these latest recommendations. And certainly all across the country, people are following your advice to practice, practice, practice the procedures so that our nurses and um, physicians and other frontline healthcare workers will be safe. Maybe you could talk a little bit about how is the CDC facilitating this effort across the country on something that's really new? And while it probably sounds incredibly simple to our listeners, we know that it's not that simple in terms of getting it right around uh, whether it's the personal protective equipment or changing your algorithms for how you screen patients when they arrive at the primary care office, the community health center, or the emergency room? What are, what are sort of the tools and maybe technology is helping us get this message out by video, by social media? Talk to us about how that effort is uh, proceeding at CDC. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's an all-of-the-above approach. It's a, there's certainly not one way that this, uh, that this is done. You know, what's been key and, and is always key for CDC when it comes to working to provide information uh, to the healthcare community in this instance, but to the public as well, is partnerships. Uh, CDC is actively engaged with uh, a number of different professional organizations. We've connected with the American Hospital Association. So we really rely on these partnerships with these groups who can reach their members. And we really consider it to be a two-way street. You know, we want to provide them the information that we have, and we want to hear from them. What types of information do you need? What questions are you hearing? What format do, do your members like to get this information in? Uh, absolutely, technology is key. The, the Internet is, is such a gift uh, for being able to provide this information to folks. Uh, social media is, is certainly uh, something that CDC has gotten uh, very good uh, at using. Uh, and also trying to work with partners to make videos, because I think when you're talking about something that is so very visual, like mm-hmm. putting on and taking off personal protective equipment, uh, I think people really find you know, training videos to be very, very helpful. And so uh, CDC recently partnered with the Armstrong Institute at Johns Hopkins Hospital uh, to try and produce some uh, good training videos that show people, mm-hmm. you know, uh, suggested ways to put on and take off protective equipment. Um, and so, you know, we continue to be open to ideas for how to reach folks, uh, and we're always receptive to input if 
people have ideas for better ways to, to reach out and connect with people. We're speaking today with Dr. Arjun uh, Srinivasan, spokesman for the Center for Disease Control and Prevention and Associate Director for Healthcare Associated Infection Prevention Programs in the Division of Healthcare Quality at the National Center for Emerging and Zoonotic Infectious Disease at CDC. He's also captain with the U.S. Public Health Services under the Surgeon General. And I think many of our listeners know uh, about the great work the U.S. Public Health Service does. So thank you for your service. It's campaign season, and certainly Ebola has entered into to the political arena all across the country. And we are without a Surgeon General, though uh, one has been uh, since February with the appointment of Dr. Uh, Vivek uh, Murthy. Um Could you describe, just as a physician who works for public health services, what the impact has had in the week of the Ebola crisis? I know we have had Surgeon Generals on our show over the years and their ability to communicate to the nation in terms of the health crisis is very important. And just take a few minutes and talk to us a little bit about the the work and the role, the valuable role that the U.S. Public Health Services plays. Yeah, well, I would point out that you know, there, there is certainly a, an acting Surgeon General, Boris Lushniak, who uh, is a, has a lot of experience in public health. Mm-hmm. The Public Health Service has, of course, a long history of working to serve and promote the health uh, of, of Americans. Uh, we are uh, thousands of healthcare professionals mm-hmm. working in a number of different professional organizations, uh, government agencies, uh, on a variety of issues, both providing frontline healthcare uh, and, of course, working like I do at CDC on working on guidance uh, and issues to improve the delivery of healthcare. So, Dr. Srinivasan, I'm uh, intrigued by the name of the division that you had in just listening to Mark read that long title uh, gives us some sense of what your 48-hour days are like <laughs> as the Associate Director of the Division of Healthcare Quality at the National Center for Emerging and Zoonotic, uh, a word that's probably not so familiar to most of our listeners, infectious diseases at the CDC. And Ebola, though it certainly has commanded the world attention right now, is just one uh, example of the many infectious diseases and, and deadly pathogens that your division is tasked with monitoring. Tell us about the scope of infectious diseases that you and your team are concerned with beyond the Ebola virus. What other, what other risks and pathogens are you most concerned with on a, on a global uh, basis as well as domestically? You know, one of the the major issues that we are confronting on on a daily basis uh, is the threat of antibiotic-resistant organisms. And this is, as you uh, have just mentioned, not just an issue in the United States. It is a global problem, uh, and it is a, a huge threat to public health. The CDC estimates that every year in this country, more than 2 million patients will suffer an infection for which the first-line antibiotic is ineffective. So more than 2 million of these resistant infections every year. Um, And thousands of patients actually die from these infections. This is a problem that's been a a long while in the making, but it's uh, certainly reached a a crisis uh, situation in the United States. One particular type that's uh, really in in some ways the the poster child of this problem is a bacteria called a carbapenem-resistant Enterobacteriaceae. It's really a family of bacteria. Um, And this is a group of organisms that has now, in some instances, become resistant to every single antibiotic that we have available to us. So there are patients uh, in hospitals in the United States who are getting infections that we can't 
treat with antibiotics. And that uh, is really, a, you know, a, certainly a very a stunning development and something that requires a, a great deal of, of urgent action. You know, we've been uh, fortunate to have the uh, uh, heads of Save the Children and Doctors Without Borders on the show recently and uh, listened to the work that they're doing on Ebola and uh, also have been following the World Health Organization's estimate that the rate of infection could jump to 10,000 new cases uh, per week. Uh, what more needs to be done to tackle this epidemic at ground zero, and what's it going to take to contain the epidemic? You know, I think it's going to take nothing short of a, of a global response of the type that I think you're, you're beginning, we're beginning to see uh, developing. It's going to take the, the global community coming together to support those countries in West Africa you know, in their efforts to control this epidemic. While we're uh, responding on the ground, we're also trying to really control and uh, support really the public's uh, need for knowledge and education. We always say knowledge is power uh, in public health as in everything else, and especially where there's been uh, so much uh, new information coming at people. Uh, we're still looking at CDC as uh, providing the gold standard for up-to-date information. That's certainly what we're using to communicate with folks. But where do you recommend that interested clinicians and providers as well as consumers go for the most up-to-date information? So there is a, a wealth of information on the CDC website. Uh, there is a separate section of that website now that's dedicated to, to Ebola. Uh, you get there from our homepage, cdc.gov, or you can get there directly at cdc.gov forward slash Ebola. Um, and there are separate sections there uh, that pertain to healthcare providers, to the public, uh, and there's lots of information, all of our guidance documents, uh, but also a, a host of scientific information, uh, frequently asked questions. Uh, so information that's relevant both to the healthcare community and to the public uh, is found on cdc.gov forward slash Ebola. We've been speaking today with Dr. Arjun Srinivasan, spokesperson for the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and Associate Director for Healthcare Associated Infection Prevention Programs in the Division of Healthcare Quality. You can get the latest updates and learn more about their work by going to cdc.gov. Dr. Srinivasan, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on Conversations on Healthcare today, and thank you for your service to the country during this very challenging time. Thank you so much. At Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? We've seen instances of Republicans mischaracterizing the impact of the Affordable Care Act on student loans and Democrats, in turn, stretching Republicans' positions on the subject. For instance, in the Arkansas Senate race, Republican Representative Tom Cotton claimed that the ACA nationalized the student loan industry and implied students can't get private loans from their local banks anymore. Not exactly. Plenty of banks offer private education loans, and the federal student loan program always has been a government program. Cotton was also attacked in an ad from the National Education Association Advocacy Fund, which said that he, quote, voted to end low-interest student loans. 
He didn't. The vote in question was on a Republican budget that called for ending federal subsidies for need-based Stafford loans. The subsidies cover the cost of interest payments while students are in school. The Republican budget didn't call for ending the loan program, which includes unsubsidized Stafford loans at the same interest rate. The federal government got into the student loan business in 1965 with the passage of the Higher Education Act. First, the loans originated with private banks but were backed by the government and offered at low interest rates. By 2010, 55% of the federal loans originated with banks and the rest with the government. The ACA, or more specifically the Reconciliation Bill, included student aid provisions to cut out the middleman, the private lenders. Now the government is both the lender and the guarantor for all federal loans. The move saved $61 billion over 10 years, according to the Congressional Budget Office. What does this change mean in practical terms for students? Basically nothing. Students still consult their college financial aid offices for borrowing opportunities, and the government does still contract with private banks to service the loans, meaning some students may still send their government loan payments to private banks. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. The flu doesn't just exact a toll on public health, it packs a meaningful punch on the economy every year as well. Comprehensive vaccination programs have had an impact on curtailing flu outbreaks, but there's still a lot of room for improvement. In 2011, an estimated 100 million workdays and close to $7 billion in lost wages were attributed to the flu largely because many employees without paid sick leave are more inclined to work while sick. An estimated 80% of those who come down with flu-like symptoms ignore doctor's orders and go to work, leading to more widespread co-infections. In a first-of-its-kind study, researchers at the University of Pittsburgh School of Public Health decided to analyze the impact on flu outbreaks in the workplace and to ask what would the difference be if there were universal access to paid sick leave. Lead researcher Dr. Supriya Kumar says their study showed a pretty dramatic link between access to paid sick leave and a reduction in flu outbreak in the workplace. They also created another option. What if there were a new sick leave category focusing just on flu days? Their model showed that if those workers specifically diagnosed with flu were guaranteed just one paid day off to recuperate, there'd be a 25% reduction in the spread of flu. And when workers were guaranteed two paid days off, the numbers went up to a 40% reduction in co-infection. A universal paid leave program for all workers that has the potential to greatly reduce flu co-infection in the workplace, positively impacting both public health while saving billions of dollars in the overall economy? Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center. Mm-hmm.